0: Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging, accessible, and fun way. Each week, I investigate the urgent question of what it means to be human, and with my guests, we envision a better world, what that would look like, and the guests are People who have some of the biggest projects of our time, the most rebellious projects of our time. Journalists, occultists, musicians, intellectuals, philosophers, and more. This week, I'm doing a state of sexuality in 2019 uh, as part of my state of blank uh, in January with Dr. Chris Donahue. Dr. Chris Donahue is an author, most recently, of the book Rebel Love. Uh, he's the host of Loveline. He is a public sexual intellectual. He's a sexologist. And he's awesome. He's also a very close friend of mine. Chris and I met years ago when he was doing the show Bad Sex for the Logo TV network. And I was doing a show called Ask the Sexpert, which was for Logo's uh, website called New Now Next, Someone tweeted at me and said, hey, uh, or they tweeted at Chris, I'm not sure which, and said, uh, did you replace Chris Donahue? And Chris tweeted back and said, no, I'm irreplaceable, because the guy was confused. He thought I was hosting bad sex. <laughs> and um, after I saw that, after I saw Chris say I'm irreplaceable, I thought oh, I got to meet this guy. So we met and we became instant friends. And we've been having this ongoing conversation about sex, sexuality, and politics uh, since we met years ago. In this episode, uh, we talk about all the things to sort of look out for and think about uh, as far as sexuality and sex goes in 2019 and what's going on in our current moment. We talk about um, body shaming and body image and how that plays into politics. We talk about um, communicating clearly with your partner. So there's a very practical aspect to the show, too. It's not just an intellectualizing of everything. We talk about the politics of restorative justice when it comes to sexual assault. Um, how do we deal with sexual assault without just doing what the state does, which is resort to a punitive and cultural model? We talk a lot about pornography, we talk about sex addiction, we talk about whether or not those are fair lenses uh, for viewing things, and, and here's a hint, we don't. <laughs> um, anyway, I think that this episode has a lot, not just to think about uh, in an intellectual, cultural way, but really goes deep into questions of what you can do in your own life. Um, so I think this is the part of the show um, where on other podcasts they talk about the sponsors. My sponsors are you. Um, my sponsors are the listeners who listen on Patreon. And this show really could use your help now more than ever uh, supporting its mission. So go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib to support the show. It really could use uh, your contribution. And one of the reasons why is I'm really expanding the show. I want to have more guests. I want to pay the guests. I want to get better equipment. I want to um, basically be able to make this full-time job my full-time job. (laughs) And also I'm on this new venture now of doing a gosh, five- to eight-year-long project uh, in grad school, I'm getting a PhD in Ireland, um, which I've announced on the show before, but maybe you're just hearing about for the first time. So patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. Contributing as little as a dollar a month makes a huge difference in the ability of the show to function smoothly and just sort of go off without a hitch. Um, also, you get cool stuff for it. Another way to uh, support my work and what I do is sign up for my upcoming course, God Sex Death. God, sex, death is a online course featuring me, Peter Rollins, who was on two previous episodes of the show, um, and Caitlin Doty, the mortician and best-selling author. So we're going to all swap topics of expertise. So Caitlin, the mortician, is going to be talking about sex. I, the sort of sexual person, (laughs) the sexual person, I'm going to be talking about God. And Peter, the theologian and philosopher, is going to be talking about death. So we're all going to talk about each other's respective topics. Then we're going to pose challenges to each other and respond. We don't know what they're going to be. And then we're going to do Q&A. The course is going to be on January 20th, so there's still time to sign up. You can get tickets uh, through, just go to my website, connorhabib.com, or you can comb through the tweets or find it on my Patreon. Um, But the Eventbrite link uh, where you get the tickets, it has too many numbers in it to be able to tell you what the link is here. So look in the show notes or go to my website, but uh, it's called God, Sex, Death, and there'll be plenty of it available, uh, plenty of links available in all the stuff I do. Um... Or you can sign up for my Patreon and you get a discount on the ticket. Um, so if you go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Beebe, you can find uh, access to that course on there and you'll get a discounted rate on the ticket. So God, Sex, Death, please sign up, uh, support the Patreon. Very excited to share this episode, uh, The State of Sexuality and Sex 2019 with Dr. Chris Donahue. Here we go. Chris Donahue, and welcome once again to Against Everyone with Connor Veve. Oh, that's right, I've done this before. You have done it before. That's right. What's it like the second time? Is not as special. Yeah, because I forgot I did it the first time. I know you were afraid. You thought it would change your life. You thought it would blow your mind, and then it was just kind of like eh, it did. It did yeah. nothing. Yeah, Very it really did nothing. Very for, forgettable. Yeah, so for so anybody. Ha- really so happy who be was listening again. to your voice. So yeah. happy to be here. <laughs> um, so. This month, um, in January 2019, I'm doing a sort of series of shows on um, the kind of state of the world, but really we're talking about a very specific world, which is west, certain kind of Western culture, um, for different topics. So I'm doing State of Philosophy with Peter Rolland, um, the State of Queer with Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, oh, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. so. You're the sexuality and sex person, so I want to talk about that with you. But to sort of get us there, let's we'll say that this coincides um, with your book, Yes Rebel Love, Yes, Yes, which just came out. Yep. Yeah, January eighth. Yeah, that's well. This will come out after January eighth. So we're doing weird time travel it's right out. now. It's out. It's <laughs> out. It's out. It just came out and it's been a huge success. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Do you like how I secreted that yes, for I you? Um I like that. Um, so. I I think that one of the things that's really great about your book is that it's a distillation of a lot of conversations that you and I have, and that I always knew would be challenging to sort of broader audience and wider culture. But can you sort of talk about why, first of all, you decided to write, a popular book because your last book was great. Um, sex outside the lines, but a a bit more academic. Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah, sex outside the
1: lines was more academic. Um, I just come, more recently from academia at that time. So I was still operating under the belief that I needed a lot of citations and, and and references to kind of support my work. And I also love like, like you, I love reading and I love research. So that was all in there. Um, and I also wanted, I wanted the work I was, um, engaging in to be accessible to other people. And that's why I like references and citations. So people could kind of further their own study and exploration of those concepts, whatever. So long story short, as I do more media, um, and just being out in the world, I realized that the general population um, is often a little thrown off or can be threatened by some hyper-academic languaging, which is very fair. And mm-hmm. I realized you know, the languaging you use speaks to who can engage your work. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to only have it available to people that thought on a certain level. Um, and, I, and I really don't even believe that intellectual jargon makes something more meaningful either anyway, right? right. So I wanted to write something that was... Uh, more accessible, uh, more relatable, but still had really heavy, profound concepts because what's really important to me is that I don't ever write books or do work that's just a regurgitation of thought that's already been kind of explored. Like, I want it to always be new and transformative.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, you know, for me, the big mission of this show is to bring complex ideas in an engaging way. And it's not because I think, People are stupid and couldn't get the complex ideas, but that kind of language represents a conversation that's already in... It's already like in motion. It's already taking place. So for people to just jump in, you know, imagine just going to a party and you see five people talking, and they're all talking about. If you're not there from the beginning of the story, it's hard for you to get into the language and the cues of what's happening.
1: Yeah. And, and my mom read my first book, and she said, you know, <laughs> she's one of the first people, and, and she she's a reader, and she said there were some you know paragraphs or chapters that I'd have to reread a couple times to understand. I thought, well, how is that meaningful or helpful? Right? Yeah. Like, what's the purpose of that? It was almost like I was intellectually masturbating on everyone and saying. Like, look at these big words I can use. So anyway, <clears throat> I wanted to write something that was easier, easier to read, more accessible, still really meaningful, but also something that was more current and relevant. Yeah. Like a lot of my thoughts have changed and developed and like, what's one of them that you can say has changed since the first oh, book? That's a really good question. Um, well, a couple of things. One, my own work and, and, and being an author, I wanted more vulnerability. Mm. So even though the story doesn't have like quote unquote personal stories, I know that I bared myself more in sharing my thoughts and the topics I talked about. So for me, there's more vulnerability in this one, Got it. um, and it might not be obvious to people. Number two, I think it's a little, it's way more sex and body positive than the first one. Mm-hmm. I focus a lot more on the impact of our body and our sense of our bodies and our, des- you know, our sense of desirability in the world. And also I talk more, I think about the impact of social media, um, and the influences around us that have on us. And I think it's also a little, it's more political.
0: Yeah, so I would say that in this book, um, part of what you're trying to do is show how our sexual selves are uh – you know, they're an amalgam in some ways. They're, they're all like, they, they come together through this sort of nexus of all these different forces that are happening in culture and in us as well. So, I mean, it becomes in that sense, I would say it's a much more political book. I mean, for, for people, even though it doesn't really talk that directly, there are some moments, but talk that directly about politics. Right.
1: Right. And also, I also wanted it to be, um, empowering where, I wanted it to talk about what's wrong, but I also wanted there to be space for the sense of like, we can do things to change it, but Mm -hmm. there's also a call to action for everyone to also have a little bit of a wider lens and to try to be part of that change process. So like as a, as a therapist, people will come in or even like on my radio show, they'll call in and they'll want like a really easy answer. And that's the, that's the problem. Like give me
0: an example. <clears throat> Make up an example.
1: Okay. So for instance, someone might say, and this comes up a lot. So people will say, you know, I'm struggling with body image or body dysmorphia. It could be a man that thinks he needs to have a gym body or a woman that thinks she needs to be thin or uh, someone who's trans and thinks that like, they have to be femme presenting or whatever, whatever it is. And they'll say, well, what can I do to feel better as though there's just like a really quick, easy answer. So mm-hmm. I can give them like a blurb or a thought process or just change their cognitive thing which what a lot of what therapy does therapy traditionally implies that the problem's in you and you 're going to come into my office and in one hour because you 're the problem <laughs> we 're going to fix it via reframing your thought process and although that 's impactful meaningful we can 't be more powerful than the world around us and the impact of that and all the things that we immerse ourselves in and so I kind of reflect that back, which is like take responsibility and control for not only the influences you allow yourself to be around, but also the impact you're having and Mm -hmm. are you strengthening, reinforcing those same things that you feel victimized by? Like, let's change those and let's challenge those. Um, so it's like a wider angle lens.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the parts of the book that I found, you know, really exciting and also a little challenging for me. Right. Um, and not, uh, you know, I mean, challenging in the sense of like, how do I determine what Affects um, the things I like, you know, the things I desire wow. are having in the world and for other people. And are there, uh, to me, it seems like a lot of different ways to sort of reroute them. So this is actually something I think that brings us really into the uh, 2019 thing, because there's a lot of talk about the politicization of certain kinds of desires. It's always been so. That's always been going on. But the kind of like the emphasis of who's pointing The finger at desires and how we sort of indicate which desires are okay and which desires are not okay in our culture politically has changed a little bit. So um, I think we should talk about that because it's something that on the one hand I agree with. Like I agree that we we need to look at our desires and think about how they sort of play out in the world um, and our sexual desires included. But then on the other hand, I think Um, But it's not so simple as saying, okay, so you do this thing in your sex life and, you know, from any other sort of like social political justice standard, this would be a, you know, quote unquote problematic as if it's like, I hate that word, like it's like a math problem or something. (laughs) Like, but then... um, you know, but is that does that apply sexually or does it not apply sexually, and there's lots of tensions there between sex positive movement and sort of justice movements and bi positive yeah all the, yes exactly and, yeah yeah because yeah. that's where it comes in a lot. For me, and
1: so were you thinking of that component where I talk about like body positive feminist porn
0: yeah well I was, th- I was thinking about that, and I was also thinking about just like you know th- this whole idea of <laughs> something that I know you said to me, although maybe somebody else gets credit for it sometimes know, which is job. like your or the, your orgasm is not neutral right, right? right, right. and so um, I know that for you because you're always thinking through that kind of comment that's a sort of that's like a one-off for you. Like you say stuff like that all the time and it's like, yeah, you know, and, and then it can come back and maybe you'll develop one of those ideas. But I think a lot of people, whether you said that or, or anybody else was saying it, a lot of people have that sentiment right now. Like, Oh, we need to politicize our organisms. We need to politicize sex and we can't view these acts as neutral. And I don't, I actually don't, I don't take that, perspective, but I want to talk with you about it. And I don't know that you do either, but I want to talk through it because I think that that almost probably more than anything and we can go into other things too, but it represents the kind of sexual state of affairs right now. Yeah. And there's
1: also some piece to it. So, okay, so let's use that exact statement. Like your orgasm isn't neutral. And for those that maybe don't understand what that means, um, the, the basic breakdown of that would just be, like everything that you do has an impact and, uh, your sexuality is in theory reinforcing and problematizing something, or it's part of a change process. And are you also engaging in something that's victimizing you around something that you don't want to be a part of? Cause for instance, like, um, okay, so let me, let me transition out of that. So I don't know that everyone has to use their sexuality as their political or even psychosocial intervention on themselves or the world. Mm -hmm. Like we choose to mean you and a lot of people do like, I love working within sex and I think you might agree with this because Mm -hmm. it's a really powerful way to create a lot of interventions, culturally, socially, personally, like Mm -hmm. clinically. I love that because when I work with someone and I'm doing true sex therapy, that is for me the most direct, honest and powerful way to work on family issues us general self-esteem, body esteem, relational dynamics, intimacy abilities and, and tolerances, um, authenticity and confidence, All of these powerful things are like so directly. So I choose that, but I don't think everyone does. And so when I talk and you talk or in my book talks about, you know, the porn you're watching and who you're having sex with and the ways you're having sex, that it's political and you're reinforcing a problem or changing a problem or transforming yourself. Some people are like, I don't want to take that on. I just want sex to be sex. But for me, Mm. like that is the lens that I apply to everything. And so it's so important for me. Mm-hmm. So, I guess my first point is just like not everyone has to take up that
0: challenge right right, yeah, I think that 's a good point, and I think it 's like to expect people to take up that challenge in that arena. To me, is like, well, people got a lot of stuff to work on yes. in that arena, and a lot of people like, think sex is just so trite and banal, sure. and not that deep and not meaningful. Yeah, and well I can say, like, I can see, okay, there's a political dimension if you're in, you know, really, it's it's like the standard as we think of it, man, woman, <clears throat> you know, relationship, and like you're the dude, and you don't give a shit if you're if your girlfriend or your wife is feeling like any pleasure during the sexual act, I can understand how there's a political dimension to that. Correct. Right. And there's also and a psychological dimension, but a psychological dimension. But I also can see those two people just working on it as like, we want to have a better relationship and like, I'm not feeling pleasure in this and he's not, you know, seeing my needs. And that's how most people will probably encounter that problem. Right. And it is useful to bring in a sort of political You know, to mention because for a lot of, you know, women to be able to even say, I want this and I'm not getting it yeah, that is something that feminism has has provided, you know, as a as a sort of manner of speaking, a way to speak in those kinds of relationships. And
1: again, it's also about like what lens are you holding? Because again, like you know, um, your gender doesn't determine whether or not you're feminist, right? Like being right. female body doesn't make you inherently feminist. But for people that are wanting to be a part of feminism, and we're in the fourth wave, and the fourth wave of feminism is pro porn and pro sex worker and pro trans and body positive and sex positive. It's really big and sexually empowering. Like you just. Out for a woman to say, Hey, dude, I'm gonna stop you. Mm-hmm. I don't like that kind of sex. I want you to go down on me. I absolutely need to come and get off. Right. And I know for me, and this is really profound because a lot of people assume because the work I do or those that know me that I'm like confident and bold and outspoken and like I am, but writing this book, I had a moment where I realized, oh my gosh, I'm sometimes allowing myself to partake in sex. I don't want to have, or with people that I don't want to be having it with.
0: Mm-hmm. And I don't
1: mean that on a major scale. I mean on a minor scale, but that's huge where I was like, well, I mean, I'm having sex with someone and it's someone that I don't know. It's a hookup. It's anonymous. And I'm like, I'm not even enjoying this. I don't even think that they're a nice person and I'm mm-hmm. going along with it and mm-hmm. I'm feeling bad about it afterwards. Why am I Allowing it? Why am I continuing it? Oh my gosh! I didn't even speak up and ask for what I wanted, and so that was profound.
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think that you and I have both talked about experiences like that before. Whereas like when I go through an experience like that, I'm I often think to myself, I'm going to consider, I'm going to consider this afterwards, so I don't feel bad afterward for right. the most part anymore. Every once in a great while, um, like I I had this like. Uh, I had this like foursome when I was like – I did this trip around the country, which I think most people uh, who are patrons of my Patreon know about because I posted about it. But um, for three months and I had this like foursome and the whole time I was like, uh, you know, there was like one guy in the whole thing that I was attracted to and the other guys I was not at all and it was just like stop, start and weird and uncomfortable And, you know, afterward I felt bad. I was like, that Mm. didn't feel, that didn't really feel, but that, that thing for me now is very rare. Usually I think this isn't really that great, but I'll just consider it afterward and see what I can learn from it. Either technique wise, like what could I have done better or what could I have communicated better? How could I have gotten through that experience in a way that was pleasurable or exciting to me? Cause I like to learn from it, you know, you know, but I know that everybody can't take that tactic you know that that's
1: something is there something powerful about doing some of that work in the moment because that's what i'm trying yeah, to do sure. more of yeah and also examining like what part of me isn't willing to do that in the moment the part that doesn't want to disappoint let down totally do i not feel confident enough to ask for i want to say like hey this isn't going in the way i thought it was going to go like can you do this to me can we not do that and so i've been trying to do more of that um and it can be awkward but for yeah. me, I'm practicing that where I'm like, yeah, hey, could you please touch me here, do this, or this isn't what I was looking for, or, or the the whole, like, well, let's just call it a night. This right, our, like, right, right.
0: Out. Well, I, I mean, I think, and then there's the flip side of that when you're just like micromanaging the entire sexual experience yeah. with the other person, which I can fall into pretty easily. I'm like, no, no, don't do that, do this, don't do that, do this, which is why I find like in some ways being uh, dominant in a lot of ways in sexual encounters is so much easier for me because I'm like, do you know how to follow instructions, you know, like, and then and then, oh and then they they do and they're into that and then i'm like wow that's really that's really great that's oh. easy but i want to say so we'll, we'll get we're gonna pull it back to you yeah. the, <laughs> the things of like politicizing sexual encounters um, um. in 2019 but i want to say something that i realized was what one of the dynamics that's at play there and people understanding each other's sexualities in our culture there are identity things at play yes. so like I was talking to my friend Heather Berg, who I wrote, uh, who I just had this article come out with, called The Problem with Sex Work is Work. And she and I were sort of talking about differences between sex workers who were cis, straight women, mostly, and then also sex workers who were gay men, and how there were just big differences overall in perspectives about the sex work. And she was like, do you think that the, the valence of the sexual encounter is different? And I was like, well, you have to think about the fact that Gay men struggle. People who identify as gay, they struggle to get to the point where they're able to say yes to sex. Whereas, like a lot of women are struggling to get to the point where they can say no and mm-hmm. stop the encounter whenever they want. So, like I get to say yes to these sexual encounters with other men. I get to say no to the sexual encounters that I don't like. So, the even though the work is ultimately the same, which is finding this authentic, you know, um, pl- way of standing in your integrity and yeah. the sexual experience. And just giving yourself some room to think about it, the direction is different there. And so I think it has a different, she's right, different valence in the encounter. Yeah,
1: and then fold in their race.
0: Yeah, sure. Class.
1: Yeah. And all that, and that's going to change it. And that's kind of also what, in my book, Rebel Love, I talk a lot about that too, the intersectional perspective of how our multiple identities are gonna impact how empowered we feel to set boundaries and ask for what we want sexually or to tolerate the possibility of slut shaming. Cause that's like really profound. Mm. Like slut shaming is so profound and you know, I consider myself someone who's further along than most, but it's still in micro moments will will pop up and I'll catch it. But I, I think about that, you know, in other cultures, um, and I don't mean that as in like Non American cultures, but even other subcultures in America, that is a profound block or um, impediment for people. The idea of will I be slut shamed? Can I have the sex I want and ask for sex I want with the people I want it with, even maybe a husband or partner, mm. and not feel slut shamed? And if I am, can I tolerate that? Because for a lot of people, slut shaming, and we, for me and you, I mean, weigh in on this,
0: it's rare for me, but slut shaming for a lot of people is a profound deterrent. Mm. Yeah. So I, you know, I think that this, again, this politicization of desire. So one of the ways I'm seeing it come up is people being critical about the content of pornography. And this is something that's like yes. super touchy and I want to sort of, and I, and I want to call talk, out, call, through call out the touchiness. First. Yeah. Okay. So, um, cause not everyone's going to understand. That. Yeah. Okay. So what, what I, what I'm saying is like, if people see, so the, the sort of cl- classical and most, Uh, uh, prominent version of this is okay, well, women are being used as objects in porn. Okay, so that's a sort of old version of it. But now that's taking place of like, oh, well, aggressive porn, which is being called rape porn, like where we see aggression or violence in pornography, That that's a real problem. Or, okay, so the way that people of color are portrayed in their various sort of stereotypical roles in pornography is a problem because these things basically a lot of it comes down to well, you're trying to uh, appeal to white cis male desire every single time, no no, matter what it is. Yes, exactly. And um, so this again, well, continue. Yeah, and I just want to state outright that like. I've done porn that was, like, Orientalist porn. You know, I did this, like, two scenes of this movie called Tales of the Arabian Nights. I, 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 for example, I, I knew right? I was going to have that one. Right yeah. so, so you heat know, heat. Yes, and it was, like, they had, like, a, an oud or something playing, and dun, 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 like, playing in the background, and, like, I was wearing these robes yes, and heard. all that kind of yes, stuff. And um, a lot of the other guys in the movie weren't Arab, which was also, not. like, that was, what is that, like? They were, like, laughing. Is that, like, brown face? Like, yeah. what? Yeah, what yeah, is yeah. that exactly? exactly. And so that created all this whole complicated set of feelings for me. But then what I got from that movie were tons of Middle Eastern gay men being like, "Oh hey, thanks a lot. You know, for that movie, we appreciate it." And then also I think that people might call out their desires as being problematic, you know, like, "Oh, well, of course, they're, you know, they've eroticized orientalism because they're so screwed up." And I want to talk about it in a way that neither denies the political realities of our world, but also doesn't shame people for their desires and also doesn't um, put everybody in false consciousness in a state of false consciousness just because they enjoy seeing something like, oh, well, this is just because you're damaged. Well, it's it's always both, right? Because,
1: again, there's the tokenization, fetishization of certain bodies in porn, but leaving that to the side, like I have a friend who is an Asian porn performer, which uh-huh. of which there are a handful.
0: Yeah. Well, right. In, and in, in, in our culture, yeah, correct. that was yeah. in our culture. Yeah.
1: And it is profound for him to do the work, uh, because he has shared with me emails he's gotten from people that have said it was really powerful for them as an Asian individual to see his Asian body desired. And so it was very transformative. Now is some of the scenes that he, uh, some of the work that he does, is it fetishized with the labels of the movie name and all that for sure. But yet it still also has this powerful transformative capacity. So it's like, it's both. And in my book, rebel love, (laughs) um,
0: (laughs) which came out on January 8th and has since been a bestseller. Thank you. Um,
1: I, I I do discuss, you know, uh, because again, I, I, I'm all about therapy and psychology first, and I do talk about people trying to have a, more of a consciousness of the impact the porn they're watching has on them. Mm-hmm. So it's not even the political perspective of, oh, what kind of porn are you supporting and what impact does that have on the world? I'm not even going there yet. I'm just starting with like, just think mm-hmm. about how it impacts you. Are you watching porn that makes you walk away feeling more desirable and more eroticized and empowers your sexuality and your body or, or not? And if not, stop watching it. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't I- want guys who have smaller penises watching this big big dick porn and then thinking everyone wants that and has that because, well, number one, that's not true. Um, And number two, take some control over um, Mm. the the impacts of influences in your life, you know?
0: Yeah. I think that, um, yeah, one of the ways that I think about it and sort of say what you're saying is like. A lot of people aren't really ready for the political dimension of sex yet. Like, people are talking about it as if their sexuality and sexual desires are sorted out from this, like, place of pure health. And that, to me, is the real problem. It's not, it's not that we can't talk about the politics of certain kinds of imagery, which we should be doing, you know, which we could do with all art, by the way. And especially violence and all that kind of and, stuff, and, right? And shouldn't do. And yeah, I, and, right. Yeah. But we're not talking about, for instance, like, is it okay to show, like, you know, a woman being shot in a movie? Right. You know, I mean, we are, we do talk about that, right? But, like, we kind of, compared to the amount of burden that pornography is supposed to take on, yes. it's kind of, it's, it's pretty my, minor. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. The burden that porn takes on. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's overburdened, but also the, you know, in psychoanalytic terms, it's like the people are assuming this, this position of the subject supposed to know. Like when we hear someone talking about, which means, like, someone who's being viewed as coming from a place of real authority or understanding that they but they don't actually have it right so um when you have an analyst sitting across the chair the the, the room from you they're your subject supposed to know like you assume that they know more than sure. you and that they see more but actually they don't right. but but that thing is an integral part of like how that therapeutic process works. So people assume this role of like, okay, well they know they must have some understanding because they understand the history of a certain political or justice narrative. But there's also a history of desire narratives. There's a history of art that comes into play with pornography. There's a personal history. There's all those kinds of things. And, and of course, a history of sexuality studies and sexology and yeah. psychology <laughs> and all that kind of stuff that comes into play. And so for me, it's like, How do you, like, how do people draw the line between saying, okay, this is because I have this, uh, these ideas about politics when I watch an image versus I have these ideas, uh, because of my own sexuality and things that I haven't explored or or, or have explored in sort of wrong directions or whatever? And so for me, you know, one of the things I say is like, it's really good to encourage people to have more desires. So it's, it's okay. You know, like if you see someone like, if I, if I meet somebody that's like, well, I'm only attracted to white dudes. Right. And well, clearly to me, that's racist. And the way I say that is like, if you're, if it's, if it's a white person saying it, I'm like, if your asshole has the same entry requirements as the KKK, you should probably check into that. Right. But, but if you are, um, If you encounter someone like that, the tactic is not, I'm going to shame you for only liking white people because that's part of the racist structure, but rather to say, how can we open you up to being more receptive to other kinds of desires and seeing other people? Which which always
1: do exist. I mean, one of the more profound things I've learned in working with people's sexual psychology for 15 years, and I'm one of the rare people, like truly rare people that... Focuses and does sex therapy like there's so few sex therapists people Mm -hmm. that almost work exclusively with that and so I've I've logged Hundreds upon hundreds of hours of working with people's sexuality and one of the profound things is that people are way too confident in what they understand to be their true Sexuality Mm. that it is far more expansive and either they're in denial about some of it or they're not legitimizing some of their fantasy life or their, mm-hmm. what they're seeing mm-hmm. in pornography as being truly authentic for them, um, or it's just things they haven't encountered and been giving ac- access to to learn. And so I try to always point that out, that like you're more sexually fluid than you realize, and there is something meaningful and powerful in actually taking time to explore that. I mean, that's what's so powerful in my office is working with people that have done some of the exercises that do exist in my book a little bit and really try to figure out how expansive is their sexuality and the impact that has on them. Um, um, and so, yeah, sexual racism is definitely a problem as you bring up. Um, and I agree with you. It's not about pathologizing someone when they kind of bring up some of that, but it is mm-hmm. about calling attention to it. But then also I always try to bring them to the piece of like, there's just this piece of not even knowing yourself if you haven't done the right. work on exploring mm-hmm. the, the true authenticity and expansiveness of your sexuality. And I and I jokingly say like, try it three times, everything.
0: Right. Right. And well, I don't, I think that's a, right? a the really first good point, time You're right. going to be a
1: little unsure. Yeah, like, sure. just don't let that be your final takeaway, do it again and see how that feels. And then the third time when you have confidence, really embody it and see, but I mean, and that's, what's so powerful for me too. And that's also like what we were talking about earlier that we want to talk about today is how <clears throat> there's certain behavioral activities that have been ruled out for certain people. So for a cis hetero guy, what is profoundly right. destabilizing for their confidence and identity in the world is any kind of anal play even right. when done by a woman. Right. And I think that is, I mean, I jokingly said this a couple weeks ago in an interview that when hetero men are open to anal play and my work here is done, uh-huh. <laughs> like, that'll be such a benchmark uh-huh. because yeah. that, and I, and I say this to individual listeners, if whether you're gay or straight or even a female, the anal area is such a feared, avoided area. It is so much so for hetero men. And to explore and allow and find confidence within that is such a transformative, transformative yeah. thing.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that that's part of what <laughs> what's happening in the turn of 2019. Like I said something about 2017 yeah. will be – like in 2017, I was like this this will be the year not of political failures and disasters, but it will be remembered as the year as like when – Straight men started getting rimmed in porn because, like, it, there was an explosion of it, and pegging, right? and pegging became like a big and, thing as and, well,
1: and and trans trans partner sex, and right. and you know, yeah, it is, that is that is that is radical, radical stuff.
0: Well, and I want to say that, like, you know, in framing this kind of like whether or not the porn images are politicized, sexual racism is politicized, all those things, yes, they have a political element, but I would say that a desire. Desires that we have, sexual desires we have, they, they, they also present boundaries. It's not just what I don't want that presents a boundary, right. but what I do want also presents a boundary. So if you're having sex with someone and they're like, I don't want you to touch my asshole, you could be like, oh, my God, this is like political, like you're falling into your straight male identity and blah, 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 blah. But the fact is, if you touch their asshole and and they told you not to, then you have a real problem with like crossing someone else's boundary, whether or not your politics, quote unquote, are right. So when people say, you know, so that's what they don't want. But if they do want something, too, I think it's like look, I I am attracted, or I, I like this kind of porn, even though it has problematic content, it's like, okay, I get that you like that porn, and I get that you're setting a boundary that you don't want me to tell you to not like it anymore. Yeah. And you're not going to have that conversation. But you haven't stated that I can't have a conversation about the other kinds of porn that are available to you and the other kinds of things you can watch. And maybe watching a lot of these kinds of things will have a transformative effect on you. You know? Well, yeah, because again...
1: Taking it kind of away from what you're saying, what comes up for me and what you said is, you know, again, this is my therapeutic psychological lens speaking, but shame reduction is the number one thing I do in my office. Mm. And so, like, I love any conversation that centers around allowing someone to acknowledge what they are interested in, even if it's highly problematic, Uh. because no one should be shamed for desire.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Whether or not they act it out And take into consideration the impact that desire will have On the other person That's when that's a completely into, different totally. issue yeah.
0: But just the presence of a desire Shouldn't be anything so much of shameless I know, well, it, and it becomes such a Sort of triggery thing for people I remember a while ago There was like someone had like there was there was a high school or something where they where uh the girls had to wear sort of more i would say conservative mm, uniforms hilarious. and someone posted a sign somewhere one of the girls had posted a sign that said like if you're sexualizing us you're the problem right. and i thought well okay it's good to rebel against the uniforming that's makes sense but like when we start talking about whether or not we're sexualizing somebody, in other words, imagining a sexual situation with someone, no matter what that is, I have to defend the ability to imagine it. I'm not a free speech warrior. Like, I don't think that like, we have to like get, get into every instance of free speech and defend it and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think we need a more nuanced, deeper understanding of how that works, but I am an imagination defender. (laughs) Like that's our, our place of true privacy, our place of true like development and development that actually does not, uh, go out in the world and hurt others in the same. Cause let me, cause let, let me add to that. Cause yeah. it's not even just, uh,
1: yours, because it's also, yeah, you're supporting imagination. I, I haven't heard it said like that. You are, your imagination, uh, activist. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's also, there's also this um, foundation of like sex doesn't, it, sex isn't dangerous. Uh huh. Like eroticism is dangerous. Yeah. Arousal, ar- eroticism is not dangerous. Arousal is not dangerous. Right. If we're talking about a healthy individual has boundaries, impulse control, and empathy. Right. But, right. And so for someone to be able to acknowledge, yeah, I am sexualizing her. Right. And what she's wearing as but everybody did to, when
0: they were high as everybody
1: did when they were in high school Totally, right? <laughs> and we continue to culturally do right if you look at any billboard or magazine or <laughs> Right, fashion right, but um, the the yeah, the problem isn't that someone's sexualizing someone. Yeah, but that's what they're problematizing Yes, in exactly. that statement. So we have this idea that eroticism and sexuality um can be turned on and off and can be compartmentalized and but like I try to remind people that uh, where our sexuality is always in operation. Mm-hmm. And this kind of goes into the whole thing as why sex addiction isn't real and that's a whole other conversation. But it's not something that can be turned off or avoided. Like my sexuality, my eroticism is what I chose to wear today. Mm-hmm. My sexuality and eroticism is activated in how I'm looking at you right now, how mm-hmm. close I'm sitting to you, how close I stood next to the woman in line at the coffee shop. I'm having sex as I may be texting someone on my phone right. or looking at something on Instagram. So it's like we have to learn how to encounter it we have to stop acting as though it's something we can remove, not have available and don't need to face and, and like shun. We have to learn how to acknowledge its existence everywhere. And that came up in my first book a little bit where I was talking about how like we're t- we train certain professions to also believe that their sexuality can't be brought in. Like Teachers are supposed to act like sexuality doesn't exist in the classroom mm-hmm. between students. I, as a therapist, have been literally trained to believe that like I should have shame if a client sees me on a dating app as though right. like I'm not a sexual person in the world. I remember that struggle. Or, we talked yeah, about it a lot. Totally. Yeah. Or I have to dress a certain way and hide my sexuality. I don't in my clinical office I wear short sleeve shirts. I show my arms, I show my tattoos. Mm. Um I'm I'm trying to help people understand that eroticism is always operating. It's always in play. Right. It's everywhere and we have to learn how to encounter it and not shame it or shut it down.
0: Yeah. And I think it's like, even, even in just sort of considering others. So it's like, I read this book by, it's terrible. There were so many good things in the book. And then I got to the porn chapter and it was terrible. This uh, book by penis. Yes, totally. This is a book called penis envy by, uh, well, anyway, you can you can look it up. But anyway, in it, she was writing about how when her students came in, she was always sort of like embarrassed, knowing that they had watched all this like aggressive, intense porn when they came in. And I was like, what? why the fuck are you embarrassed? Yeah. You know, like, so even in relation to oh, other people's whoa. sexuality, you can internalize a sort of like strange uh, process of there, the embarrassment and fear. There is a fear.
1: really well-known therapist whose name I will not mention, whose books <laughs> Are huge, and she just released a new book about uh, cheating and marriage, and in it she literally calls uh porn use low level cheating, yeah. <laughs> And this woman claims to be a relationship therapist, and it's like Well, I'm and that's, that's at your completely work.
0: out of touch with. So it's like what you're saying, like yeah, our, Why would you ever try to ban pornography when you know that our imaginations are pornographic? Like it's just not going to stop. Totally. It's stupid. Ha- sex is a constitutive part of being yes. human. You literally cannot exist on the planet without sex. It's not just like any other thing. Which is why, and, which is why, again, just to throw this back in there. You can't be addicted to it. Right, yes, exactly. You can't exactly. be addicted to
1: breathing. Right, or, or <laughs> sleeping. Right. You can have compulsive
0: behaviors totally. around certain things. It can be
1: difficult you know? to manage, but it's not an addiction. It's difficult to manage. Because, again, I always jokingly say, yeah. I've yet to have um, a sex addict self diagnosed masturbating in my office and on the way in because they can't stop. They can, it just feels difficult. I have never seen someone unable to stop having sex because they're addicted mm. and having sex in the cereal aisle at Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. Like you've never seen someone doing these things because it's difficult to stop. But it's I mean, like it, eating. It, it feels it, yeah. difficult. It's compulsive. Um, but you are able to because even people with compulsive eating issues aren't grabbing food Um, out of people's hands and trash cans because they are able to stop. They are only compulsively eating the foods they choose. uh Sex addicts are still choosing their partners and the kind of porn they want to watch and when they want to have it. So there is a boundary around it. It's just, it feels out of control. So compulsivity is real. And I work with some clients that struggle with that, the impulses, but Uh sex is always around. So it's about learning to encounter.
0: Yeah. And well, and interestingly, I'm sure a lot of people cancel appointments because they had a work meeting, right? It's like that they, that they, not only do they not feel like they could can't, right. like cancel and come to therapy, yeah. but actually the demand is being made from outside where they have to, or they're fucked, or they lose their entire livelihood. I,
1: I talk in my book, I have a whole chapter on this, how you know in psychology, and this has shown up very comfortably in culture, problematically so, um, we, have a, we have an issue when someone is over-reliant upon sex or even a relationship, and we'll call them... Codependent or sex addicted, but people have sold out their lives, their family, their health and everything else in service of work We have no problem with that, right? And so it's like why do we have codependence in terms of relationship and sex addiction, but there's no work dependence? Right. and so I problematize that where people say something like yeah, I couldn't attend my kids' soccer game or your birthday party Excited I had to work and we're like, oh, we get it. No, fuck that. I don't get it. And I want my clients to not understand that. And I want my clients to say, people need to come first. And I want my clients to say, I'm a human being. I need to be actually more important than work. And I know that there's some uh, financial privilege in in my ability to say that, but even if you're not privileged enough to be able to mm-hmm. not prioritize work, you can still be more present when you are with your partner. You can still call on your work or lunch right. break or text or whatever it is, but we're too
0: comfortable hearing work coming before human values and um, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, that's just like, okay, so maybe you can't take off of work and you still have to do it and you can't bring that politic forward to right. abolish work because of the situation you're in, but you can at least spot that so you can stop feeling bad about jerking off to porn an hour or two hours a day, or like, you know, wanting to have sex with your partner or wanting to, you know, whatever, like seeing the things that we deprioritize and call addictions. If you just sort of look at what you spend your time on actually in life, you can at least start to. Flends away some of the guilt that's yeah. Because the amount of guilt, the amount of guilt that
1: people have around pleasure and leisure is mind-boggling. You know, there's so much shame in people saying, "I did nothing today or all weekend," because we're obsessed with things having. Productivity tied mm. to them and that's the only thing that we think gives something meaning and you know We will talk about we love saying things like everything in balance really, but we don't we don't work 40 hours and then just have sex for 40 hours We don't work for 40 hours and find 40 <laughs> hours of pleasure, right? And so it's 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 mind-boggling and so we actually don't honor balance and we are pleasure phobic and it specifically comes to sex because I've written about this so much where if you said I traveled the world, trying cuisine, different foods and, and looking at standard art, people are like, ah, oh, beautiful. But if you said I traveled the world at different kinds of sex and sex partners, people are like, you're, right. you're sex addicted. You're disgusting. Right. Really? Why, why can you watch six hours of football or real housewives
0: on a Sunday,
1: but you can't masturbate
0: or have sex. I had, I had, I had such such someone like, yeah, I had someone email me about that. Like when uh, people email me about porn addiction all the time, which yeah. is really interesting. I'm like, you know, you're telling me that like the thing I'm doing is enabling yes. your addiction, but that's yes. fine. Okay. Yes. But, so, but someone emailed me and it's like, you know, I flew two hours, like on a th- two hour flight to like meet this porn star that I really liked at this event. I was like, that sounds great. Yeah. Like what, but it, it was that translated into addiction. And we know from a lot of different studies, um, and a lot of different work, but I, I think it, at, in, at this point in my life is just common sense that like, people in areas where porn and sex are more condemned have a lower threshold for what they consider to be sex and porn addiction, right? So obviously... The problem's guilt. Obviously it's cultural. Yes, Yes. exactly. So, I mean, I think it's we're at sort of an interesting point with that, too, because in some ways that narrative has fallen away, um, the sex and, and porn addiction narrative, and in some ways it's become even stronger. So there's so much talk right now about how all the access to pornography is affecting people's lives and their ability to like have like good sex or whatever. And to me, it, it's just an insane proposition. It's again, the subject's supposed to know thing. It's like, did you think that like teenage boys who are always the subject of this like weird fascination with their sex yes. lives, do you think that teenage boys were having great sex before this? No. Like, did you think that their politics yeah. around sex were yeah. great? Because the, what you call rape culture that we live in now emerged out of that emerged yeah. out of the pre-internet. Like, well, there's also, there's also
1: like, this is actually something you said um, that was meaningful to me about how, you know, there's so much being written about the problems of sex and porn that you acknowledge that there are some, but you're not going to add to that because right. there's so much that and and I, I try to add the positives too because therapeutically clinically speaking there's so many positive aspects of sex and pornography and I try to speak to those because nobody does mm. and there are profoundly transformative aspects where I have prescribed as a doctor Dr. Donahue to my patients porn and sex that has been transformative because people will say to me, Oh, when you do sex therapy, you're, you're fixing sex. And I'm like, well, yeah, but more importantly, I help my clients use sex therapeutically, right? Sex therapy is finding ways to use sex therapeutically to work on all of their issues, intimacy, building self-esteem, general esteem, um, intimacy, tolerance, um, all, all sorts of things you're feeling more confident in your body, whatever it is. um,
0: And so we don't, we don't unpack those pieces. (laughs) Right. And I think it's funny because Nicole Prowse, who we were just talking about like off the air, she, some, some, she's a sex researcher. Yeah. She's a, yeah. Yeah. She's a sex. Yeah. She's great. And, uh, (laughs) there was some anti-porn like Twitter account that was like having, watching porn to spice things up before sex is like eating sugar before a marathon. And she was like, actually we eat carbs before the marathon. And also here are the results of watching porn before sex with your partner. And it was all like this positive research, you know? Right. And so again, it's like, like you say, like, I'm not claiming that there are no problems with pornography, right. but I'm actually in a place to actually say what is wrong with pornography because I've been studying it, thinking about it, and participating in yeah. it for over a decade. So I'll make that determination, but I don't want to hear it from people whose starting point is that it's bad. You know, And that's the other
1: thing, and this is maybe like a little bit of a side note, but – Yeah, I'm a little burnt out on people that haven't done the work. And I mean that in a broad sense, having (laughs) an opinion. Like, no, actually, everyone's opinion isn't meaningful, actually. Like, do some research, theorize. Maybe work with it clinically. Maybe yourself participate in that, that work yourself or whatever it is. Otherwise, shut the fuck up. <laughs> right. Because I'm so burnt out on someone's like, well, it's just my opinion. Yeah, and that doesn't mean anything to me. Like, give me research, thought, theory, right. practice, experience, something.
0: I don't think – I'd be happy if they were saying it's just my opinion. But what they're it's usually saying is this is what's true and that's just your opinion. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, it, 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 you know, the quote by Harlan Ellison is like, no, everyone isn't entitled by the, to their own opinion. Everyone's entitled to their own informed opinion, which is something that's much different. And I I think it's like, you know, a lot of times these are coming from lived experiences, right? You know, um, and I think, and I think, okay, great. It's really important to bring lived experience into the room when you're theorizing, when you're discussing, but are you theorizing Yes. also? And it's like... You have a gallbladder, but you don't know anything the fuck about your gallbladder. So you carry that around with you every day. That's your lived experience, but you don't know how it functions. So let's not talk about things as if just because we possess them in this sort of capitalist, consumerist way, oh, you have the object, so you get to talk about it. Well, it's even
1: funnier, the anti-porn feminists, which, you know, again, feminists (laughs) that's anti-porn isn't actually feminism, but those that claim to be, um, they haven't even watched it. Uh Uh-huh. Or engaged it, and so I love hearing their opinions. Where they'll talk about it. It's like, are you really aware of what's out there or what's happening? Because that's not accurate. They'll talk about like, you know, again, the rate porn and the best. They it's think that like,
0: that's all the porn that's yeah, out there. Which is like, so untrue. If you really
1: look at what's being, what's being, if you look at the research that shows the most popular key search terms, it's not those words, right? Actually, it's fascinating. So take some time to research what they are. But they're right now the top ones are around like hot moms.
0: I know Le- Lexi <laughs> Alexander who was on the show. Like on, that's what people are wanting. Like she was on moms. episode 51. She She's a film, a uh, Hollywood director, yeah. and she was like, "I wish that Hollywood would follow the example of totally. of porn because, like, the idea that women in a certain age can be beautiful has not even been adopted." It's, it's so, and, but yeah. again,
1: that's an example of how transformative <laughs> uh, porn and porn research can be. Which is the top within the top ten key search words. There's three references to hot moms uh-huh. or older women. That is so meaningful and huge. And I want the women Mm. in my practice that are encountering ageism and feel undesirable to know you are actually highly sought out. (laughs) It's just, you're looking at the wrong kind of media. It's your daughter who's disgusting. (laughs) Your daughter is actually undesirable. But like, that's really profound. And that's an example where porn can be really healing, transformative, that the porn that's made is made because it's being desired and sought out. And so I want people to be encouraged and transformed by what people are looking for. And that's mm-hmm. why I send certain minority bodies and other kinds of identities um, to porn that reflects back who they are. Because when you see your your fat body or your disabled body or your queer, non-gendered body uh, desired and sought out in pornography, that's powerful. And yeah. that's transformative. And I send people to, to find that stuff. That's meaningful.
0: Well, okay. So I, w- I want to take that to, there's a part in your book where you talk about body positivity, yes. body sizes, body shapes. All- all that yes. kind of stuff. And I have a little bit we've had a little bit of uh, just yes. in our personal discussions a little bit of friction about that. So while I agree yes. that like we can find all kinds of different bodies desirable yes. and I'm certainly I'm attracted to people that are not in the sort of me standard so. frame of attraction, right? Like or what society tells us yeah. is hot. And you know, I've been in and out of different weights and saw who was attracted to me and who wasn't. You sure have. So <laughs> Body shaming. From the no, host that was of love body loving floor. I love all of your many bodies. Oh, all of it? Is yes. it so much that it's that big? <laughs> no. Um, anyway, so, uh, but you know, there, there's a way in which I feel the sort of body positivity critique is it like, oh, well, or the sort of body shaming critique, the sizeism stuff, all that, a lot of times it's not hooked into a more radical politic that makes it interesting enough for me to sort of get into and defend. So So it's in the sense of like, you know, a lot of times what I feel like is being said not by all because there are some people with radical critiques who talk about different body shapes. So I just want to put that out there. But sometimes I feel like the idea is like um so yeah, I want you all to like the kind of person that I am so I can have sex with the people that are considered hot by our culture, right? Like there's this weird missing piece of like um who 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 are you aiming this critique at and is it to be desired by those, you know, by by just the people that are already, is it upholding, should, I should say, is it upholding the societal standard that's already in place, right? So like and i want to say like there's something missing like there's not a capitalist critique in there somewhere there's something that's missing about like how uh, certain kinds of mm. attractions and images are produced and 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 represented that to me feels off and i'll get more specific into all that yeah cuz i don't agree you to with,
1: go. i agree with that oh so you do yeah i don't
0: know how to i agree with that well okay so like here's the thing it's okay. like like how about like let's take Lena Dunham as an example cuz i like to i i feel fine saying anything about her at this point okay. so she she had this whole thing about like well i 'm going to you know take all my clothes off in every episode of Girls and right. whatever and you know when I first started watching that show, I was like that 's great, you know like good i 'm glad that there are different people being naked in mainstream media that yes. makes a lot of sense, yes. but then slowly, as she just started becoming more vocal and present in our culture, it was revealed that she didn 't have any other real like real politics at all. in fact, she was just sort of a you know like, she, she's completely dumb about all her politics, I should say. And and she existed as this sort of liberal symbol, but she didn't... She was completely vacuous when I came to the other stuff. And so I just thought, okay, so this isn't really about a body politic. Like, right. this is about you. This is about... This is this sort of myopic thing, which may, in fact, be empowering for other people in some ways. It, it
1: would have been for her and for them. Yes. So that part, great.
0: Yeah, and it was for me at first, sure, too, sure. When, I was, yeah. when I was looking at it. But I just thought, like... Um, you know, that's a great example to me of someone whose politics, their materialistic politics about their body and wanting to be desired aren't linked into any other kinds of politics. So I don't trust the body politics that are there. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm not seeing anything particularly deep there. I want no. to keep going deeper into it, yeah. but that's just my surface example.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, well, A, I'm not that familiar with her work, I never found her interesting. Um, <laughs> but i I agree I, uh, so a lot of the people whose work I follow that that are in body positivity, their work is a little more intersectional where they are bringing in historical racism and trauma and and they're talking about how the eating disorder world um, isn 't body positive mm-hmm. and it doesn't and it 's built for white people, white cis hetero people, and mm-hmm. it doesn 't acknowledge or meet the needs of people of color so like I guess for me that that work is there, but I do agree with you that often the body positive world can be very superficial and it can be sometimes actually sex negative negative. and for mm-hmm. me, if something is sex negative, it isn't body positive, yeah, because for me, body positive and sex negativity are are hand in hand always you can 't be one without the other right like and I talk about that in my book where you can be you know um i don 't know if it's worth getting into this, but like how we're so afraid of um our, our sexual bodies and having them seen or touched, and uh, mm. we're not we're not kind of being aroused in public. And what does that mean? Whatever. So. Um I think those other intersectional pieces do need to be there because I don't right. think it's just such a, um, as you said, I guess myopic or like, um, contained thing, but I see it evolving. No, yeah. I well, let,
0: it. Let, let's go down. Let's okay. go down this, this, this flight of stairs into the body positivity oh, basement a little bit. So one more step down. So let me also well, just say this. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> this is profound for me is the body positive movement was born out of fat rights. And that's one of the problems. Mm-hmm. Is it's been divorced from that, and so uh, um, yeah. it, it's it's often not. Pro body, And there's also a distinction that has to be made between body autonomy and body positivity. And people confuse the two. And I've worked with some people who've confused the two where they've said like, oh, I'm going to get, I'm going to make my body look the way I'm told it's supposed to look. And I'm going to have surgeries and lose weight and all these things. And that's me just being body positive. It's like, well, no, that's you being body autonomous, which means you get to do whatever you want with your body. Mm -hmm. Have at it. But body positivity born out of fat rights is the idea that I'm okay as I am and I don't need to change it. And the work is about existing as I am. And that's not saying you can't alter your body, but it's original premise is fatness. And so people have said, Oh, Dr. Chris, are you supporting fatness? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because my entry point is psychological and I don't believe you can have physical health if you're psychologically shaming yourself. And so, yeah, my first entry point Mm -hmm. is you're allowed to be fat. Fatness is okay. And for you to deny that or to shame someone, we can't then
0: talk about physical health. Physical health can't exist without mental health. Right. So, so, okay. So two things. (laughs) And I think the healthism thing is actually a really important thing to discuss. But the, that's okay. So, the two things, and one is like um, the idea of what I was saying before, where desire is a boundary, right? So, when I see people that are talking about lookism or body positivity or whatever, I think to myself, It's fine to say there are more options for what to be attracted to, but a lot of the politic is based on shaming people for the desires that they have, which are conditioned and shaped by culture. So it's like, it's like, how about we talk, we figure out a way, you know? Then, okay, because so, okay. this is where I think we bumped heads. Because yeah.
1: you were thinking I often would shame yes. people being attracted to me, but they're attracted to because yeah. it was reinforcing a standardized monolithic body.
0: Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that out. Okay, no, that's good. <laughs> the other thing is, okay, so then there's this whole idea of um, someone can be in the body that our culture says looks a certain way. Which but, I am. Right, and yes. Many times in my life, I am and feel body. And feel a lot of the same feelings of horror and shame. So we were talking about privilege, if we talk about the kinds of privilege that people are bestowed in culture for looking a certain way, those are in the body, sizeism, shapeism kind of stuff. Those actually don't always correlate with the inner feeling, right. which is which makes it in some ways different yeah. than a lot of the other kind of identity politics that we're talking about. Because right. you can be fat and feel amazing about right. yourself, or you can be like totally ripped and feel disgusting, right. shameful, horrible. I mean, people, of course, who are, have an eating disorder, or anorexia, but that's, all, you know, but, so. that's what,
1: but that's also one of the elements I want to add that complexifies all this is that <clears throat> the people that have met the quote unquote, uh, body standard, and let's just use the gym body as that standard for this argument mm. or this conversation, the people that have achieved that, um, which to me isn't an achievement, but for them, it's an achievement. Um, they are trapped by that too. Right. right. So even though people would say, well, congrats," like your privilege and all's well, well, yes, socially, there's a privilege in that. But internally, they're held hostage by that because when you're also getting attention and privilege because of what you've just achieved, you know you better hold on to that. And so there's an anxiety and right. the possibility of loss of that. And so I do work with those people clinically where they have the anxiety of I know I need to hold on to this because I'm praised for this. My self-esteem is dependent upon this. And so the work is about you know not shaming them for the buy they have, but helping mm-hmm. them understand they're held hostage by it, and also helping them understand the places where they're culturally reinforcing that would victimizes them. So I say to them like. You know, you're working hard on this body, which you were held hostage and victimized by, but also privileged by, and you're posting tons of shirtless gym bodied pictures on your Instagram, which is perpetuating that problem that victimizes you. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where I call out, stop posting those pictures because you're reinforcing this norm, this culture that you're also held hostage by that also traumatizes other people. Maybe just pull back on that. But I also don't want to shame your body and say, don't post pictures of your body because there's something needed and powerful in posing pictures of your body. Right. So it's like, I don't know. It's a conundrum. Yeah. So it's a, so what are your thoughts on that conundrum? Because it, I struggle that personally. I feel trapped in that sometimes. Where I want to post body pictures, and I think there's something powerful for, hmm. it's multiple levels, so I think there's something powerful for people to see a doctor, hmm. and we're trapped in respectability politics, which is the idea that as a, as a professional, I have to look a certain way, and it has to be, you know, professionalism, and it can't be sexualized, and it's like, well, fuck that. And that's why I'll post Um, Pictures of me with my tattoos on my social media and I'll say profoundly sexual things and wear hats that say slut And sometimes I want to post like underwear pics and be like I'm a doctor Mm -hmm. and you're gonna take me seriously and I lecture around the world and I'm also here in my underwear But I also don't want to reinforce a certain body.
0: Yeah, so I think what you're talking about is You know it it cuts the heart of a lot of our political issues right now Which is that we can't simply look at the material conditions of what's happening so if I see someone on a gay pride float and he's got six pack and he's, you know, like, you know, what we would call naked, I think to myself, well, you're still completely clothed. You decided over, you know, a year or whatever to create this outfit for yourself, (laughs) which is your naked body because you're afraid of being naked, right? Now that might not always be true. Or if I read someone's memoir that's about being fat and how hard it is to be fat and how stupid everybody is for not desiring fat bodies. Mm. I think to myself, well, what would be more interesting to me here is hearing about the joy of being fat, the joy of eating, the joy of having partners who are attracted to the, all the body that you have there that you can present Which to Which you people, beautifully
1: right? shared with me. Like As your body has yeah. grown in size, yeah. you've talked about the joy in having sex with different kinds of people because yes. now
0: that those who desire you, that population has changed. It's a whole different set of people, yeah, right? And that's, now, and that's not to say <clears> that you get to cast off. All the problems or like troubles that come with right. being fat and having you know all the sort of things that are pressured on us and you know that culture our culture asks us to feel if we're fat, right? It's not that you get rid of all that, but you can talk about like I, it, it, when you see someone who's saying, "Why can't you desire me? I'm fat," I think, okay, can, do you desire yourself, right? And I could say the same thing to the person who has, like, the six-pack abs. It's right. like, do you desire yourself? Like what's going on here? Like if you see those dudes who are like constantly like lifting their shirts up and like flexing their abs at the gym in yes. front of the mirror, yeah. they're like constantly checking <clears throat> on themselves. I'm like, do you want that? Like, are you, it seems to me that you're checking that because you don't really want it. You're not really thinking about it. You're just sort of reminding yourself maybe what you're there for, but you're miserable in the experience of going right. And that's the hostage situation to yes.
1: talk about where they're checking because they're anxious it might not be there. Ah, oh, yes, it is there. I now feel comfortable calm and soothe. And it's like, what a horrible dynamic where when I'm at the gym, (laughs) I'm rocking out some my music. I don't give a fuck what my office and I'm watching them and they're watching themselves and they're so trapped. And it's like, they've taken that hour to psychologically abuse themselves and the anxiety they carry with them. And then what they're going to eat afterwards
0: and the impact of that, where I'm like, I'm eating whatever I want. Right. And I think, and I think that that's the, I mean, that that's just the sort of crux that I was talking about. It's like, there's an aspect of these body politics and all politics, but, we, but I think it's more apparent here, that is really about inner conditions, about a sort of spiritual sense of being that needs to be discussed, that yeah. needs to be talked about, because you can't really get to the heart of the matter merely by talking about external conditions or material conditions <clears throat> surrounding, because right. they affect us in such different ways when right. it comes to just the size, shape, dimensions of our bodies, right? And something that's so personal to us as our bodies. And
1: that's why my, though my first entry point is always, like I was saying earlier about um, the porn you're watching and all that is like, how do I feel? Right. And uh-huh. before you even look at the cultural impact, like when I'm, when I'm centering a certain body that I think I need to have, or when I'm posting certain pictures on social media or when I'm watching certain kinds of porn or whatever it is, like how do you, how does that make you feel? Because those guys looking at themselves in the mirror, they feel good, but they don't feel good. And they're right. posting those pictures and they're looking at how many people are liking it. Right. And that feels good, but that also feels bad. Like, am I getting enough likes? Am I not? And then they're comparing their body to other people's bodies and that, actually doesn't feel good, that comparison
0: game. And so I just first start there, too. Right. And I would, I, would, I would also say, like, to add to that, once you get to the point where you're like, you know what, being on Scruff or whatever it is that I'm on, being on Tinder, is making me feel bad about myself. Yeah. So I'm just going to stop, you know, I, or, or it could be Twitter or whatever. I'm just going to stop for a little while. But in that time, after you recuperate, I would say start to try to consider what made you feel bad about that experience instead of trying to, yeah. A, externalize it onto the social media form itself. Yeah, which everyone does. They, they do. As though it's like Twitter. No, it's us. Right. And then B, mm-hmm. like think about how, how do I want or not want to roll with this? Because I can see someone who is like going to the gym Getting like you know some a woman who's like getting this like perfectly shaped ass according to what our society wants and like abs and all that kind of stuff, and then posting the pictures and then getting all the likes and feeling good about it, and then saying you know. I'm conscious that the act of going to the gym and making my body look like this is not consummated until people tell me that they like it. When you become conscious and aware of that, it actually transforms the act. So I'm not saying let that go. Don't let it go if you can actually get into a place where you enjoy that experience and that cycle and understand that that's part of the exercise and that's part of the body and that's part of where your feelings lie. It's when people are doing that compulsively without realizing that that's part of the experience. It's like someone who... Has sex with lots of people or has sex with – like think of some dude who like, oh, I wanted to have sex with this woman and then finally has sex with her. But it doesn't feel good until he tells his friends that he's had sex Mm. with her. And then the extra component of the eroticism that completes the cycle for him comes in. In those cases, just recognize that that's the sex act. That's right. the body act. That's the part that makes right. you feel good. And mm-hmm. then that becomes transformed.
1: And then I bring the polarization of it all because I also believe we have to look at social impact. And then it's the secondary piece of right. how how does your integrity align with the impact your behavior has on the world and the social media that you produce? Mm. Um, and I say that to people like, you know, who's it oppressing? Who is it not? Um, is it, are you perpetuating, are you perpetuating and strengthening a system that victimizes you? Um, and then that's left, you know, people are left on their own with that. Like for me, Mm -hmm. I want all my social media to be transformative and healing. I don't want it to be part of strengthening something that oppresses me or other people. And so I post images and messages and things that are, uh, liberatory, um, not things that I think are going to make people feel, uh, less than dehumanized, not desirable. And so I post things with diverse bodies and races and sex positive and all that, not things that imply like there's only one good body to have, or, um, this is what a good body looks like. Cause I, I don't, my integrity, my value system right. won't allow me to be part of that system. Yeah. And,
0: and so I would say then that like. A big part of what awaits us in the future of sexuality as well. And maybe you want to try that this, this year is something that Mona El Tahawi said, um, on the episode I did with her, where she said, I just want there to be one day, mm-hmm. like a year where everybody has sex with somebody of the gender or gender expression that they say they're not into. <laughs> like, uh-huh. let's just get this bullshit out of the way, right? And, and I understand, like, in some ways she's, she's making a joke and in some ways she's making a very serious point. And, You know, and I understand the ways that that might seem to exclude asexual people, but I want to just make this sort of deeper point here that, you know, moving into sexual experiences that don't seem initially to be what you want or desire out of your own volition and intention. I'm going to put myself in this situation. Not that someone else will do it to you or for you, but you decide. I think that that's really important. And I think it's something that a lot of people who are trans are telling us about now when they say things like, look... Um, if you 're entire if you 're attracted to everything about a person, yeah. but then you find out that their genitals are not exactly what you thought that they looked like. you might want to consider that you know as something that you might want to get over right and I think that that's such a, that feels so threatening to people because of all their identity uh, their, uh, their the identities that they 're tra- they feel that they 're trapped in when they 're meeting yeah. people that are tied to their notions of am I straight am I gay am I this am I that And I think that, like, that's a lesson that we can carry out into in general. Like, if you like everything about a person and you find that you can't have sex with them because they're just too fat, right? Like, we see this a lot here in... Obviously, in Hollywood, West Hollywood, where it's like, Yeah, like I'm only into muscular guys, I'm only into whatever, you know, like see what you can do there. Put yourself because let me just start. I say this
1: lovingly, like, I this I try to heal this this as a loving challenge. That's also your self esteem, like, try to to tap into a a better part of your self esteem that can tolerate being seen or being with someone or desiring someone who isn't seen as universally desirable because that's in there too. Like a smaller penis or a less worked out body. Um, I don't believe that that's not workable. I don't believe that one can't find space for that. I really do believe that that's a self esteem issue. What will people think? And it's about
0: you being comfortable expanding your uh, arousal templates. And so like that's in there too. Yeah. And I would say it's also like, don't you don't know if it's workable or not from the standpoint of never having tried, right?
1: Well, because that's the other thing. Like, you know, part of my job as a therapist in general is sometimes helping people mourn the loss of mm. the vision they had of themselves, what they needed, right. what they, you know, what would make them happy. And, and, and being able to sit in that space of like, let me see how workable this could be. Let me have a new a new vision of what's desirable, a new vision of what happiness relationships mm-hmm. sexually will look for me. Like
0: just more openness to that. And that, I think that that's such a great point because the way you just said it, like the, the sense of loss of who they are. Yeah. See, we do this thing, I think, where we think of sex and the sexual moment where people have it quote unquote intercourse is <laughs> just such a weird word for it that, that do people even use anymore, but they have intercourse and we have this idea that that's the place where the loss of the sense of self is supposed to take mm-hmm. place. Like you have this immersive connective experience, but of course, That never, that almost never happens. It can happen occasionally, but even when it does, okay, so it's done. So what I say is like, you have sex to feel alone together with somebody because you find out you don't interconnect, you find out that there's no way to actually truly get inside that person, even if you're inside of them, all that kind of stuff, you feel alone together. But The loss of sense of self happens through exploring the sex. The the sex will teach you how to lose your sense of self. It's not going to give it to you in that moment. It's going to give it to you by denying you the ability to merge with another person. So I think that that's really like this weird... And that's a way that you can learn from sex and something that you and I always say, and we said on the last time you were on the show, is like that sex is the teacher,
1: you know? Yeah, be open to that. And like what you said earlier, that ties into what you just said now about like sitting with it after. Mm. Um, and because I really do believe at its best, at its most evolved sexuality, relationality, which to me are the same thing. I think mm. even the most random anonymous sexual encounter is a relational encounter. Um <clears throat> it's transformative mm-hmm. and, and trying to find that piece of that. But anyway, the bigger takeaway is, um, be more open and fluid. Mm-hmm. And I like what Mona said. I said that at a lecture that I actually did with you a couple of years ago. I was like, have sex with people that you're not turned on by. Mm-hmm. And I remember someone be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I was like, yeah, like yeah. really get out there and do that. I think you'll, I think you'll realize that there's components of that or maybe even realize that you were correct. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that, I think that, you know, cause that's even my journey where, um, you know, identifies like queer and sexually fluid and I like different gender expressions and bodies and you know, the hetero world never says, Hey dude, you ever think about being with the dude? I wonder if that'd be mm-hmm. like. Let's explore that. Like, there's no support in that. And the gay world is never like, hey, have you ever when's the last time you were with someone that was female bodied? Or have you ever thought about thinking <laughs> right. with someone who's non-gendered right. or trans? There's no support and exploration in any of these cultures. And I think that that's there's a loss in that because I know if there's points in my life where I forgot that that was something that was arousing to me or something to be further explored. I had to find my queer friends, not hetero, not gay, but queer that don't use these labels that were like having sex with all different bodies and genders. And I was like, oh my God, that's right. There are components of different genders and bodies that I'm aroused by, but I haven't been reminded socially that that's acceptable or that I should. Uh-huh. And so I try to tell friends that like, when's last time you had sex with a dude or a girl, regardless of how you identify and, and or whatever it is. And,
0: stay more open and that's something that sex workers know like this is a big lesson from sex workers is like We have sex with people we're not attracted to all the time. And we, because we've decided to initiate it, don't consider it a violation of our consent. Which is why I think it's like this enthusiastic consent idea is just such bullshit. The idea that like two people are going to find mutually enthusiastic consent in any sexual encounter. That's never true, but it's especially not true for it. It throws sex workers under the bus completely, but it also throws LGBT people under the bus because it's like, well, when I had sex with a dude the first time when I was, I'd like afterwards would slap myself in the face as a teenager standing in front of the mirror saying, never again, never again. I felt guilty before, during, and after the experience. I wasn't able to give enthusiastic consent because our entire culture is structured around – Telling us what kinds of sex are the right kind of sex to have. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the enthusiastic consent movement is really tied into the ideas of certain kinds of sex being good and certain kinds of sex being bad. But you bring forth an
1: important question for people to always decipher, which is, is the shame or guilt I'm having around this sex act or my sexual identity, is that personally contrived or is that cultural internalization? Because I'm not supposed to like trans bodies or same sex bodies or disabled bodies or fat bodies, or I'm not supposed to like piss or getting fisted or whatever the fuck it is, or outdoor sex. Yeah. Like where's that guilt or shame coming from? And do you want to honor that? Because generally most of it's all internalized.
0: Yeah, you mean most of it's cultural and becomes internalized. Completely. Almost all of it. Yeah. I would say like 95% of it at least, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So that's (laughs) your best bet. And so the best
1: way to, again, build just confidence in things as a human being, even outside of the sexual, is to push through that
0: piece of the sexual. That's like such our core. Right. And I want to go back to what you were saying before about um, how... All the ways that you relate to things uh, Mm. erotically—that's being, that's with you all the time. When you're on the bus, the way you're sitting with me, the way you like, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's really important to know that the sexual act—and I just want—I know you and I agree on this—but I just want to bring this up: that the sexual act is probably the rarest. Of all ways that sex plays itself out in the world. Like, it's actually like the oh, most right. uncommon way it plays out. The so, least like, frequent, the least common. Yes. The most <laughs> contained, the shortest. Yes. And I'm even yeah. including, I, I mean, I think, you know, it's like sex is everywhere. And that's something I want people to really understand. And I mm. think maybe it's mm. something we can turn our eyes to. It's like, if sex is, again, it's not just constitutive of like, Being human and being alive, it's something that pulses through every single thing that we do. It's Mm -hmm. with us all the time. There's no non-sexual space. It does not exist. True. You know, because sexual things will happen in our imagination, sometimes unbidden. Well, you know, like, I mean, just ask any you know, a uh, 16 year old dude who gets a boner an algebra class. It's like y- sometimes things show up and you don't even know, but even right? the I mean,
1: people that aren't relating to this yeah. just quickly, I want to point out that's because you've probably dissociated from your body or your sexuality. so you're not right. even allowing yourself to acknowledge a hard on or get a hard on or right. to think
0: a sexual thought because it's bad. It's not appropriate or I'm in the wrong place for it or whatever it is. Right. So, well, and so I want to talk about that, like the way that that's that plays out in the ways that people talk about sex because there's this big Atlantic article that's like the sex recession. Why are people having less sex? I'm like, people, people Some are having sex. Yes. Differently. It's, it's, just not, having sex differently. <laughs> exactly. it's not, it's not possible. And so when we go to have sex, when, we, when you have sex, and when I talk about thinking about it after, and you're talking about thinking about it before, and all that kind of stuff, because the sexual act is continuously unfolding and always happening, and therefore completely normal, and in some ways we can almost say it doesn't exist in some weird way because it's yes. always there, right. um, that y- y- you should understand that part of the motivation, a huge part of having sex, is having sex with another person so you can think about it afterward and before. That's a huge reason why we have <coughs> sex along with people right, And Let me together. use
1: my language. What yeah. I would say is, is that the language I would use is a tool of intimacy or connection or fun or shared experience or... Mm-hmm or or vulnerable, whatever but this also ties into one of the one of the hot point issues that if you really want to get under my skin is when people talk about waiting to have sex. I really <laughs> want to get to know them so we're going to not have sex or the delay of sex or all that which is like number 1 as we're talking about. Well, I'm I'm fucking you on our coffee date. Right, not not with my body, but like we're having sexuality on our coffee date that you think is not sexual, and you're mm-hmm. delaying sex. But yet we are, because I'm looking at you, I'm thinking about you, we're flirting, my leg touches you so like sex is still happening. Mm-hmm. It's just not our bodies. Um, uh, Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, no. I
1: mean, I, I, I <laughs> like, it's yeah. like it's just tied into that that like it it, it doesn't ha- it only happens in one way, in one space, at <laughs> one time, and I need to delay it, and it's dangerous
0: and. people should realize that sex is the most normal thing that there is. And that's what I do. It's like 99, I say 99% of the work I do as a sort of sexual, intellectual, whatever, is showing people that sex is no big deal. And then once you go through that lens, then you can see what's distinct and special about it. But before you do that, you don't get to say what's special about it. Because what people always do, well, very often do, is they don't go through that, that Pathway of neutrality and then talk about what's distinct. They start by locating sex as a specific site of danger and threat. Yes. And that's what we always do in yes. this culture when we talk about it's sex. It's dangerous. It... It's threat. Something was taken from me. I've been yes. reduced
1: as a person. It's something I have to protect. It's something I have to bargain with. Yeah. It's like a bargaining economy. I have to withhold it. I have to keep it. And bargaining would and bargaining with it would be
0: wrong, yeah. right? Like you right, can bargain with it. Right, right, you know? right. well, there you go. Yes, absolutely. Since we're talking about sex as being located, or, or sex as being a place where we locate so much danger in our culture. Yeah. I do wanna talk about times when sex does become an instrument of danger and threat, which okay. is sexual assault. Right, I wanna talk about two things. We go out in the weeds. <laughs> one is sex offenders, particularly pedophiles, oh. child molesters, who I know you've worked with in people, your practice. People that are into intergenerational sex. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> not that kind. Cu- we you just going to normalize it there? Yeah, no, not that, not that kind. And then And then uh, and then I also want to talk about what we do with uh, people mm-hmm. who have sexually assaulted people when we talk about restorative justice rather than oh, carceral punitive oh, politics because so I think as we move forward, so we really need to start considering that. <clears throat> yeah, so yeah. first, let's just talk about sex offenders, right? Okay. So I know that you, and I think you used to do it a bit more than you do it now, right? Yes. That you'd have a lot of sex offenders. Like as clients. Yes. So we know that the laws around those kinds of things are terrible, mostly because they don't help people (laughs) um, who are victims. They're too sensitive.
1: Yes. Right. And so like. The the net is far too wide. And for those that don't know what that means, it just basically means that you can be labeled a sex offender and have to register for uh, public peeing sex in public with someone your age that consented, uh, public masturbation that was maybe done in the privacy of your car in an empty parking lot, but someone walked by and saw,
0: I mean, it's kind of wild, right? It falls under these laws. And I think that those things, those kinds of laws have started to play into what people think is acceptable or not acceptable in sexual practice. So sure. the masturbation in the car thing, I can imagine someone saying, well, that's sexual assault. If someone sees you and you're jerking off in your car, you know, and you thought that you were alone, you've sexually assaulted that person. Like I've gotten shit for like putting naked pictures on my Twitter. even well, you, know, though people you were, like You, you were really me. profound
1: and ex- <laughs> You know, you're, you were profound to explain the difference between how the conversation has to be different between physical and visual. Yes, it has, it has to be. Yeah, for sure. And again, I'm not talking about someone who's driving around showing their penis to kids right. in their car. Yeah, I'm talking yeah, right. about someone who pulled over in a parking lot and wants to jerk off. Like, don't look in my car. <laughs> right, right. And if you look at my windows in my condo, you're going to see me doing all sorts of stuff. But
0: I'm not responsible for you having looked into my <laughs> private space. Well, that's why people like you know? said I was like, I, <laughs> I had this like tweet that was about uh, if you see like my dick on Twitter, yeah. and like you know you're 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 welcome or something like that. I said something like. And a lot of people were like, oh, that's, you support sexual assault. You're a rape apologist. What? So, so the idea was. Because adults choose to follow you? Well, yeah, people follow me on Twitter. They have to have their safety settings toggled to be able to see, oh. uh, adult content. And, and I just thought, and, and they have to like, look at my feed. Right. So there's all these like moments of agency before that. Yeah. So that's how sensitive it's gotten where it's like, Oh, if someone accidentally stumbles upon it, you know? And I, I, I've got to, stuff
1: also for followers that followed you for your intellectual work. And right. And we're surprised when you would throw out there like a butthole. Some thing. people, some of whom are quite
0: notable <laughs> yes. in the public sphere yes. for <laughs> having sexually enlightened <laughs> attitudes and having written books about sex, not mention me. And I yes. won't say who, yes. but, uh, if they're listening, they know who they are. Yes. Yeah. Like go. And I was like, are you, are you, are you kidding? Like, well, cause you, you were good. Me. You
1: were good at saying that you then don't even understand what my work is. Right. Because I try to do my own versions of that where some people will mistakenly think that my work is just, uh, how do I want to say this? They'll mistakenly think that intellectualism looks a certain way. Right. And so they'll go on my page expecting standard intellectualization and then I'll, Post a pro sex meme or something scantily clad, and they right. somehow think that that's misaligned with my work. And it's like, well, then you don't actually understand my work, which is the kicker. Right, right. right? right. And then another gripe is actually, since we're on this topic, is people that say they're a fan of your work. They'll say, Dr. John, I love your work, da da. And then they'll throw out there something where you're like, do you know my work? <laughs> right, or they'll right, say, can right, you speak right, on yeah. sex addiction and the dangers of it? I'm like,
0: Uh, I can talk about how it's not real and it (laughs) pathologizes. Anyway, continue. Well, I mean, I just think, you know, in that case, I just was like... Uh, you understand that this is a workspace For me yeah. and for other sex workers yeah. Like you don't go into a store And tell the employees to turn the music Down because you don't like the, or music. Change the music It's not for you Yeah. It's not for you totally. Like this is me doing my shit so get the fuck out of my workplace If, and, you, don't, if you don't like and it And if it's someone know?
1: underage, uh, parents Help your kids understand what they should be following Like Connor's page and my page Isn't for 15 year olds <laughs>
0: And it's also the least threatening Like if you're going to stumble across a penis on the internet Which by the way, your kids have probably already done on their own, but if they're going to stumble, if they're going to stumble across it or you open it up, your and, penis is so not threatening. Connors oh, no. is a very safe penis. <laughs> be upset. It only uh, shoots smiley strange, emojis out of itself. When I, yeah. It's a starter penis. Yeah, it is. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. It's true. It's a starter penis. And, um, you know, a lot of people just, they don't ever graduate past the training <laughs> wheels. Oh, um, man. anyway, so, uh, but I think it's like, that's the, that's the least threatening way yeah, to encounter, encounter ima- yeah. like sexual images, even like more than like even le- less threatening than like going to a museum and seeing but let, like. But dear God, like, let's just also there. just have a
1: conversation that you need to calm down. No one's been injured by seeing a penis. <laughs> all right, so like, I, I, okay. As someone who as someone who's worked clinically for fifteen years and does trauma work and sexual right. assault work and all that, no one's traumatized
0: just merely in a vacuum by seeing a penis. And I do think that there's a difference between so say you send someone an unsolicited dick pic, right? right? I have all my issues with that too, but we 're not going to unpack them right now, right. but there 's an issue there where there 's a person intending to have a certain kind of effect when they do that right, right. as opposed to like i 'm just doing my fucking work. you yeah. know what I mean like don 't so anyway the the reason why I brought all that up was to talk about the ways certain kinds of laws around sex offense sex sexual assault yes. have have gotten into our kinds of conversations, and what I mean by that mainly is the Punitive and carceral approach that people take nothing
1: transformative nothing healing nothing therapeutic nothing rehabilitative. nothing socially transformative and again my issue with it uh, and my issue with the legal system the criminal injustice system is that it doesn't actually target the actual problem, right? Uh, you can <clears throat> try to stamp out and remove and put out these little fires and put band-aids, but the cultural problem from which these people emerge and these problems emerge goes undismantled
0: and unidentified and worked with. And it's worse than that, even because people have these laws um, to position themselves for political gain. So, right. like this idea of, okay, so if you've like if you're in cho- if you're in prison because you molested a kid, then you can't in some states go within this many feet of where children gather, we're obvious. And and so politicians will make that space larger and larger and larger. And, they do that because it's like a slam dunk for their political career. I'm going to be hard on sex offenders. But the fact of the matter is like most people Mm -hmm. who molest kids, molest a kid that they know. So the idea of keeping them away from strange children is like completely irrelevant. And that's my point about like
1: not dismantling the true (laughs) issue, which is yeah, most sexual assaults are done by someone. The person knows it's a family member. So in theory, we need to be more
0: threatened by our family members. (laughs) Right. Um, Remember the, remember the ads when we were kids, it was mm -hmm. Emmanuel Lewis from Webster. And he'd say, if you've been touched by someone, say no. Go and tell someone you trust. I was like, that ha- it's someone you trust that did that, yes. probably. Yes. <laughs> so, what, yes. who are you going to say no and go to and yes. tell someone you trust? Sometimes
1: it's your primary caregiver. <laughs> yes. So that 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 issue, what creates that cultural dynamic where we're sexually assaulting? that is not dismantled or fixed when we just take the person who
0: has done something and lock them away. Right. Because our mindset goes to how can we deal with the problem in a punitive way? Right. right? So let's pull back from child molestation and pedophilia because there's so much in there that can be pulled apart and just move into sort of a more generalized sexual assault thing. Okay. So how do we deal with, say, Let's take what, you know, compared to a sort of physically violent rape, let's take someone who uh, gropes somebody, okay? So like a cis straight man gropes a cis straight woman at a bar. What can happen in that encounter, Jesus? Do Does
1: he – he is actively and knowingly aware
0: that she doesn't want that. Yeah. And
1: he's just out – okay.
0: Yeah. I mean he just – he doesn't know her and he just walks up and, and like, like grabs her ass. Okay. okay. So how do we unpack a situation like that and talk about it in a way that's – you know, like what what do we do? So obviously I think it's fine in that moment for the woman to just slap the guy in the face if she feels safe doing it and be like, fuck you. Get your hands off of me. Mm-hmm. I think that that's an option. But let's say like um, – let, or, or, or to just say no. So actually, maybe this is not the best example because we're oh. talking we're talking about, if I was able to like click pause and walk into the scene and speak, what would I walk in to say? (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, pause. Yes. And, but how do you heal that situation is what I'm talking about.
1: Oh, you're asking a big question. I mean, number one, there's so many things. So it's like, are we talking about an issue of a lack of empathy where the man doesn't care or doesn't understand the impact he's having on the female? Mm -hmm. Is it a sense of just some male entitlement? Is he drunk? Does he actually think that that's something she was seeking by something she said and he's confused as to
0: body language and communication? I mean, I don't know. Okay, so but let's take it as, okay, it's a client who comes in and it's the woman who comes in and God. says, I had this happen. It felt really violating. Like, how could you talk through some of that situation <clears> with well,
1: her? Well, number one, I would try to support her um, in feeling as though what happened was valid. But bigger than that, we'd have a conversation about the culture we live in. Yeah. We live in a rape culture where people are very comfortable... Um, problematically um, inserting themselves in aggressive ways in people's lives in not in service of complimenting them or making them feel good or actually building something positive. Mm -hmm. So I would want to talk about the the, the cultural experience for sure Mm -hmm. because this person most likely, uh, all the females I've spoken to have had repeated consistent moments like this in different Mm -hmm. forms so we would talk about all of those. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I wouldn't want it to become a conversation of full victimization and disempowerment. So it'd have to be some conversation around mm. what can we do to feel more personally empowered, but also what can we do to help shift culture? Because I really do think therapy has to have an activistic political component. I think we have to stop framing everything as fixable between the two of us in our office, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. when it's a cultural issue that is consistent and universalizable. So it's like, how can we actually go out there and change that? Um, but I also, as a man, take some responsibility for speaking to other men and helping educate them on the idea that that is problematic and it feels assaultive to many women, and that they have repeated encounters like that. And what are healthier ways to try to flirt and engage and act out your arousal mm-hmm. and interest? Mm-hmm. I and mean, it's really big.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, so the thing I want to point out in what everything and everything that you're seeing right now is like there's so much in that one little moment, right? Yeah. There's so much there, and so maybe sometimes like you know, men have grabbed my ass plenty of times and I felt like fine about it. Women and men have grabbed my Yes, and oh, 100% women have like grabbed my dick. Like they've grabbed... you know, what, what the approach generally is, culturally, is for people to say, you were sexually assaulted. I'm like, I don't really care. Like, it didn't bother me. And now I'm not telling the viewers or the listeners to do that to me when they see me. It was, in many cases, disrespectful, but it didn't harm me. So these harms don't happen and play out for the same way in every single person. But when we talk about it culturally, that's something that we have to consider is, like, sometimes that actually can be the worst thing that's ever happened to somebody. And I don't mean that to root, to dismiss it. I mean that to amplify it and yeah. say, like, that might happen for someone and they feel really, really terrible about it. And so I think that what we need to start talking about is what do we do after that moment? Because it's like, again, on the episode with Mona, Mona and I talked about, right, the first thing we talk about on the episode is how we were both sexually assaulted, you know, like uh, repeatedly, violently, et cetera, et cetera, and how we had to sort of get over that to be able to do the activism and work that we've done in our lives. And so it's like I can't look at someone who's Only experience of sexual assault has been, oh, someone grabbed me at a bar. Okay, it honestly it does irritate me that someone would be like that's sexual assault. It was so horrible. It was violating. Blah blah. blah. I'm like, listen. I can tell you what sexual assault is like. However, I have to pull back and say, maybe that's the worst thing that's ever happened to that person. That could be the most subjectively violating experience. I'm glad you bring that up, because
1: you have to take into account also what other traumas have they had,
0: how empowered do they feel in the world, who did it. Yeah, that's great, right? So there are all these complex factors that are happening there. So what I want to talk about with that person is, okay, it's not that this isn't the worst thing. Maybe this is the worst thing that's ever happened for you. Maybe this was totally violating and we need yeah. to talk about that. But the question for me is, I got over my shit to be able to do something with it in the world and to do something with it internally. And it still affects me. It's still intense, I but what do we do yeah. now? Right. What do we do now, now that this happened? And that's why I want to sort of talk with you about these instances,
1: Yeah, you know? I mean. I'm going to make it broader. I mean number 1 like trauma is not something like I I I don't use the word like get over because it uh well, yeah, brains yeah, are very associative so yeah. things always get brought back and triggered and the experience carries with it which uh, carries with us but we try to transform it.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, get over in a more literal sense. It's like, I'm over looking down yeah. at it okay. and seeing how it happened and played okay. out. So life. we transform yeah.
1: our experience yeah. of it and the way we feel around it. That hopefully, was a nice say. I was, that's total bullshit. I was saying get over in a yeah. casual
0: way, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good, call. good, good clean up, so.
1: Um, but what do we, what do we do with it? I, I literally go back to, I think a lot of the best way for us to transform and re empower ourselves and all that things to do something culturally transformative with mm-hmm. it, a social component. I don't think it's about a sitting in isolation, on our own and working with it. I think that there's meaning in that. And I think that that's an important part, but I think it's literally a big cultural part. And that's why I literally think, and again, I'm speaking as a therapist. I think therapy has to have an activistic component and we have to make our clients and patients activists. And so it has to be about how can you go? Because again, it social, social, Uh, trauma is healed socially, right? And so I think there's something about the way you going back out into the world with that and what you're doing with that. And so I'd say use it to galvanize this sense of, I'm going to talk more about it. I'm going to support other people when I see it happening. I'm going to call it out when I see someone doing to someone else, I'm going to write about it. I'm going to bring attention to it. I'm going to post things on social media about it. That's actually how people really heal those things. And that's why I'm trying to push therapy into more of a social lens Mm -hmm. because it's not just something that's healed one-on-one in your office or you at home journaling. Mm-hmm. You know, relational traumas are healed relationally. Social traumas have a social have, a, have to have a social healing component. So I think it's about how you go back out into the world with it, and what you do with it. I think that is truly what's going to be transformative.
0: Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. I think it's something that we need to think about. I think, you know, one of the things that I think of when you say that is how intensely any sexual assault from the grope to the violent gang rape, like on the whole spectrum is is amplified by the fact that we have a, a culture and a society that's so bad with sex mm. that like anything that happens sexually feels bad for so many people already it's like someone could just have consensual happy sex and feel guilty about it like mm-hmm. afterward for like right. There's a, a, lot a, a year of right retroactive
1: so like, <laughs> redefinition
0: <laughs> right so much less much less something that was completely unwanted yeah. so if we if we so that's part of the work of ending the trauma and the damage that sexual assault brings is becoming a culture that's better at se- better at talking about sex and better at yeah. understanding sexuality and being more sort of fluid and open about it and being able to have these kinds of discussions. because I want
1: to throw in there also the idea that um, and we've talked a lot about this, that for some people, the event wasn't. Negative or assaultive, it gets redefined that way based on how other people respond and re-narrate totally. for them yeah. that they're walked into a trauma where for them it was neutral or it wasn't great. I didn't know that I wanted to have sex with that person or they were a lot older than me or you know whatever it is. And someone's like, "That was a trauma. You were sexually assaulted," and they build this narrative and they walk them into it. And I'll tell you, as a mental health professional, there is nothing healthier healing in that. I would never frame something as a trauma if the person doesn't. There's nothing okay about that at, at all. all. Yeah. But we do a lot of that. The cops will tell them they were traumatized. The mental health professional—that's bullshit that is abuse that is that is that's a definition of psychological that's actually abuse. abuse yeah that's gaslighting yes.
0: yes yeah totally. and i and i don't and i don't think that you have to say okay, cuz the so work
1: actually ps one of the parts of healing and, and trauma work is actually watering it down and neutralizing it so you're actually trying to do right. the opposite of what those people are Yeah doing. and
0: say it's this is part of your li- t- timeline in your life now exactly. so now what do we do yeah. so i think that we have um I think that we have this sort of dual challenge there where it's like, okay, so I see somebody who, like, I know, I know plenty of gay men who say, like, oh, well, I had sex with an adult when I was, like, eight years old or, sure. it, like, whatever it is. Now, it's not all gay men. Obviously, I'm not making a portraiture of, like, all gay men were molested, <laughs> yeah. but, and they're like, and it was fine. It wasn't a big deal. I'm, what a lot of people will say to them is, like, you were raped. You were raped. You were raped. I'm not going to say you were raped. But I still reserve my right to think culturally, socially, that's wrong. That shouldn't have happened. But I'm not, I don't need to go into, I'm not so sort of insecure in my definition of ethics and morality that I need to go into your subjective experience and make you feel like shit about it to hold the position that these kinds of acts overall are damaging. Because there's nothing healing in that. Yeah. Not personally, not culturally, nothing at all. Uh, yeah, agreed, hundred percent. Yeah, so I think it's holding those dual positions. It's like, yeah. how do I understand these things? And so, and then, so also, I want to say that there's a punitive um, aspect that's like, okay, we have, we have someone like. So let's we'll take it away from the group and say, okay, so say some, and I keep framing it in terms of cis men, cis women, because sure. that's the way we're talking about it culturally right now, especially is like some college guy, you know, rapes a college girl. Yeah. Okay. And they're still in the same mm-hmm. environment together. Yes. Now what do we do to address this problem? In a situation where that kind of uh rape has happened and it's in, you know, like we mm-hmm. turn to the punitive model again. And to me, Always. I worry about that because it's like, all right, well I understand we do need to take care of the the victim and their safety in these kinds of protect situations. protect other future victims. And protect means. future victims. Yeah. But do we really want to turn to the tactics of the state, no, which never. is by and large <laughs> responsible for never. creating conditions where these kinds of assaults totally. happen? <clears throat> and they create further assaults. Because if you yes.
1: are... Uh, incarcerated, and you're a woman, a woman of color, someone there's trans, some right. and there's
0: a lot more abuse that occurs. So, and I don't want the Hammurabi's code for the rapist either, where like a rape for a rape, like the, the totally. rapist goes to prison. And, and also, gets just raped. say
1: this psychologically and therapeutically, um, <laughs> punishment and revenge and uh, leads to you know, uh, carrying forward resentment, and none of that is psychologically healing or peace, right, right? And so, truly. And this is like a very evolved place. But what I work with my clients on getting to is when you can actually get to a place of forgiveness and you can learn something. And I'm not saying it was your fault. Learn how it was your fault. I don't mean that. I mean, learn something transformative in yourself from this. But when you get to that place, that's when you know you've healed it. And that's what the work should be about. How do we get to forgiveness? Not how do we punish them? Punishment isn't actually um, justice. Right. And the forgiveness is so There's often for trust. a sexual
0: assault survivor, the forgiveness of yourself. Totally. Because you feel so totally. much guilt. Totally. It was something that I felt like when all the, like, when Me Too is at its, like, height and its flurry, yeah. I started feeling all these feelings of guilt and I was like, why do I feel guilt? And I was like, is it because I'm a man? Is it because I blah, blah, And I was like, no, it's because it's reactivating the yes. feelings that I had when yes. I was, after I was assaulted and, and those were feelings of guilt, even though like I was yes. the victim in those things. And cases. that's where the
1: forgiveness, but also the transformation is working through that guilt and extending and expanding that. And so that's why, yeah, um, the carceral system doesn't in any way help the victim, but they'll say we right. got justice. And in the moment you might feel better but don't think that weeks later that wound and all that isn't still carried forward and you're you're being
0: triggered and associations yeah. and so if you don't believe in prisons mm-hmm. which i don't yeah. mm-hmm. and you think you think that prison abolition is important yes. so what do you do then Okay, so someone is raped. And so is there a mediation process that takes place between yeah, so the two? Yeah, so
1: transformative justice uh, and restorative justice are these newer concepts. They're being explored, worked out, brought to Congress. They're being talked about by celebrities and many writers. And it's the idea of community centered healing. Mm. How can we sit down and, and find resolution for both parties? How can we sit down and talk about what our community is or isn't doing that allows for these things to happen? How can we be better? And so it's like a cultural taking of responsibility which we all need to. We're all part of these systems. When a rape occurs, we have to look at how did we help produce the individual that raped? How do we mm-hmm. help produce a system that that can occur? How do we help produce a system where that woman isn't taken care of by her friends or those around her? Mm-hmm. Or even or how that the man wasn't held accountable by his friends. So it's like a community organizing to actually solve the issues. And so that's what, that's what we're looking at.
0: Yeah, and I Healing. think... I think that that's, you know, you notice in some of these uh, sort of higher profile cases where a woman, especially a college woman, age woman has been raped. She tries to do external mediation first where she seeks apology, you know, outside of court, like the Brock Turner thing. She was like, will you apologize? And he wouldn't. And I was like, do you understand? I don't think people understand how healing that apology would be. When I was beaten up um, by my by my with my ex-boyfriend. You know, he never apologized. And to me it was like I, I mean, I was in the I was hospitalized and I was just like d- it, does he understand like he was afraid that by apologizing there was yeah. I am sure that this went through his mind. Punishment. If if yes, if he thought at all that he was responsible. Yes. Yeah. If he apologized mm-hmm. that the legal system would punish him because that would be a confession, yes. right? I'm kind of – and I'm, I'm noticing how I'm making excuses for him even now. Like, oh, he must have been afraid. But I do think like that's a reasonable thing to be afraid of. It's like sure. if I apologize, I'm admitting I did it and therefore I'm opening myself up to this punitive carceral system. But that apology would have meant the world to me and it would have healed something that not even the uh, experience of going through something where he was incarcerated, it, that wouldn't have healed me. You know, because I, well, I just imagine someone stewing for like five years or whatever in jail because he beat the shit out of me. All but I, I also, wanted was for him to say
1: he was sorry. Right. I wouldn't want your ethics to allow someone else being negatively impacted to somehow be a resolution. Right. Yeah, totally. Right. Like yeah. that doesn't make, I, I no, don't that's feel re- better when anyone else is wounded, even if they initiated.
0: And the fact of the matter mm-hmm. is, and with a lot of rape cases, it's like you have feelings for the person, right? Like. I loved that guy and that was why I couldn't ultimately – I felt like I couldn't go to court and see him again. I didn't want to see him again. Damn. And it was like because Mm-mm. I didn't want to see his face because I was – I knew I would feel all those love feelings again. And it's like I don't want I – didn't, I didn't have it in me to confront nor to punish the person that I was still in love with after he assaulted me. And
1: it's, and it's careful, and that's to be unpacked because people will say
0: that's battered women's syndrome,
1: where you're not asserting yourself and taking care of yourself, and so we have to spin that too. Yes, Where there is something healthy in what you just said, in a y-
0: lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yes, to- yeah. To- totally. and it's like whether it's battered women's syndrome or not, it's like you still have to deal with the inner reality. A lot, a, of, a lot of people get ashamed
1: if they yeah. want to do something that's restorative justice or transformative yeah, justice, where they want point. to sit down and they'll say, "Well, you know, you're not holding accountable, and you know, you're not seeking justice." And it's like, no. You know, so, yeah, that's huge.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's a big topic. And um, and if you talk about restorative justice and you haven't been assaulted, but you're seeking those kinds of better models, then you can be re- lumped in as like a rape apologist so, or what you know. Which I'm whatever. sure some people
1: will, heard, will hear what we just said as being that. Yeah, yeah. But no, that's not. Um, but all that's <laughs> okay. in my book. Like, I talk a lot about rape yeah. culture and sexual assault and, and men holding men accountable and um, women not feeling slut shamed and seeking the sexuality they want. So,
0: yeah, it's all in my... Yeah, I mean, I think I think your book just will sort of close out with the book, and then like a tip that I want from you okay. for everybody else after we've gone through all the sexual assault restorative justice yeah. stuff. I mean, I think your book is a great it, it. The new book particularly, Rebel Love. It's like I know Chris as somebody that has um, these two sides that he's always seeking to integrate with with himself. So it's like there's this. I need to speak to the masses kind of way in like very plain language because I know a lot of people are starting at step one. Yes. And then there's also this like, I long to have really deep intellectual discussions with people um, because I'm at this part in my life of thinking about these topics. I think that Rebel Love... Contains a lot of the deep intellectual stuff and it just sort of puts it there on the page in a really sort of compassionate way Beautiful. for people that are just starting, but also nourishes people that have thought a lot about the stuff that is going on already. So I think that that's really great. I think it's like, does good. that work, it leans toward the popular, of course, yes. but it. But I think that it's like doing that work for you, which I think is good. Yeah, it is. I, I
1: love that. And because I also like, again, I was saying, I, my, it's important that my work isn't just a regurgitation of things where people like, we heard that, we heard that. I don't want it to be like, another encyclopedia of like this is what sex is i wanted to be something that's <laughs> like challenging and transformative put and
0: rose petals in the bathtub and leave a warm towel
1: out you for need you need a date night. <laughs> you know, date night all couple um But I also realized that in seeking transformation and to challenge people, that that will mean that people will not always approve of everything. Right. And I had to be, get comfortable with that, that there's going to be some things that people are going to be bothered by. And so I just asked people to sit with why certain things are bothering or triggering them and to go introspective
0: with that. Like, what about that was hard to hear or to acknowledge or to encounter? Well, be, and that's the risk of like doing anything that's sort of a little more pop culture is that like, I don't know that people who, don't know your work or whatever, they understand that there's a depth there that they can always go deeper into yes. on their own. But also with you, if you were asked the question, yes. like you can go further and that's, that's the problem with sort of some surface conversations, not that it's surface, but you know what I mean? Sure. It's like, is that like you don't get to go through all the things that lead up to the point of like, why this is a deep or yes. important or urgent thing. So I, You know, I don't really have a lot of people on the show where I'm like, your book just came out. Let's talk about your book. But it really just did end up being timed that way. So I really do think that people should check out his book, Rebel Love is Awesome. And um, so, okay. So (laughs) on the 20th of this month, I'm doing a uh, course. 2019, if you're hearing this later, um, where uh, it's called God, Sex, Death. And it's with me, Caitlin Doty, who's the mortician, and Peter Rollins, a theologian. They've both been on the show before. Um, and we're sw- swapping topics. So um, Caitlin's going to be talking about sex. I'm going to be talking about God. And Peter's going to be talking about sex. So God, Sex, death. And then we're going to challenge each other with the things that we've talked about. But one of the things that uh, I'm hoping will come out of this is a kind of a tip for everybody about each of those things, right? right? So since I'm the sex one uh, on the show... And you're here now and you you're the expert today. Um, I would love <clears throat> I hate every that day. Line, sex, every right. day. Yeah, I know it's terrible. Um, <clears throat> just expert in general is yeah, bad. I yeah. Mean, slung around, everyone's an expert. Okay, I know. Right, continue. So although I like want... being an occult expert because I'd be a hexpert. Oh yeah. bum uh, So you okay. want a tip. So I want yeah, so oh. as we go into twenty nineteen, maybe something that people can do in their lives in relating to sex or relationships that they can consider. And there are plenty of them in your book, of course, but maybe you can think of just one at this point in our moment, you know, this, this, time yeah, that I can think I, about. I'll say this,
1: uh, we're at a time where we have a lot of people seeking relationship and relationality. So this tip is more for those that are single, maybe in seeking love or relationship. But again, I think that this is applicable to everyone. So find a way to kind of apply this, but we very much live in a world where we think relationship or dating or sex is about being liked and getting approval. And so mm-hmm. people enter those things, thinking, what do they want? What do I need to say on my first date or where, or what do we need to go so that they'll like me or they'll want me? What do I need to do sexually? So they'll want me. And we move away from like authenticity. And I tell everyone that everything you're doing is either game playing and manipulation based, or it's honest and authentic and intimacy building. Mm -hmm. Always go with the honest, authentic intimacy building, which means yourself. So people say like, how soon should I text after the first date? As soon as you fucking want how often (laughs) should I text as often as you want because you're not trying to be liked or seek approval You're trying to see are we compatible? I want them to know who I am and if we're not that's okay So sometimes going on a date or having sex The success is realizing we weren't compatible and I Mm. only know that because I showed up as myself I didn't go in there trying to get them So it's about just being authentic and being yourself go on dates act yourself, be yourself. If you like to have sex sooner or later, seek that, Mm. you know, so it's just about more authenticity.
0: Yeah. And I think, so you, the way you put it in the book is date to be known, not Not to be liked. And you know, I have a, I have a friend who he's, uh, He's gay identified, he's rather flamboyant, okay. and every date he used to, you, you know him actually, and every date he used to go on in the beginning, <laughs> you were talking this really, and he can do it really well. He has this yeah. like low-brow voice, 20, and he would 20. hold that for like three dates in yeah. a row. And I'd be like, how the fuck are you going to keep doing that? At some that? point, now, the real you
1: shows up, and then you have to do I- just that <laughs> intersection of like, <laughs> "I know. is this now really going to work? Because you know, I've dressed up and taken you on these dates that aren't honest for me, and I've talked about topics and presented in a way that I thought you'd like, and I manipulated and played into getting you, which again is an act of low self-esteem. So we build our self-esteem by leading with our authenticity and finding right. those that desire and want that. And so like if I'm dating someone, I, I said this to nauseam, I'll text you every hour on the hour because that's who I am. And if that doesn't work for you, cool. Good to know. I want to know that right away because I don't <laughs> find compatibility with someone who wants to have hours and days go by without seeing and communicate. Right. And so I'm going to flood you. And if you can meet me there, which many people do, we're compatible. You want the same amount of honesty and closeness. I also will hyper, I'm hypersexual. I will sexualize you from the door. I want to see if you can engage and tolerate that. Right. Cause I, that's my love language, eroticism and sexuality. I want naked pics within the first couple of hours. That's how I build closeness. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, in some ways, like I think what you're saying too is like, no matter what you do, you're going to date to be known anyway. Yes. So do you want to be known as the person who, uh, you know, you will just be known as the person who couldn't tell the truth until the fourth date. So you will be known, but like, <laughs> it's going to come out not sooner or later, way, right? right <laughs> so Exactly. So that's my tip, y'all. Pick up my book. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much yeah. for coming. I love having these conversations with you. And thank you everybody for listening and watching. Instead of having me do this. Okay. I'll give you a heavy pat. (laughs) Blow in my ear. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll be like, and to finish my Uh. point.